This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Not too long ago, we got into a conversation. And we were talking about young people. And I wondered whether young people could ever get bored anymore. And I really don't believe that they can. Boredom is something that sometimes breeds creativity. It's not a bad thing. And so in having that quick conversation, it was very fast, got an email from Dina, and Dina says, this is something that I am fascinated by, and you should make sure you you reach out to Tanya Johnson, because she is somebody who may be able to weigh in on this and provide some really unique perspective. And so... We looked up Tanya Johnson and thought, you know what? Yeah, that's that's exactly what could happen here. And Tanya was then nice enough to agree to come on London Live. Tanya's the co-founder of the Institute of Child Psychology. Tanya, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome, Mike. So let me just throw that question at you. Can kids become bored anymore? Oh, Mike, you're seeing it happen less and less and less. You know, all of those gaps are suddenly filled with screens that children are overscheduled and overscreened, unfortunately. So when it comes to that aspect of their lives, is that an unhealthy thing? Is that a manageable thing? Where would you put your finger? Uh, Mike, it comes at a great cost to our kids. You know, when, um, can I tell you what happens when we actually are bored? What happens is that our mind, when, we're, when our mind can wander a little bit, it goes into what we call the default mode. And the default mode is actually where creativity happens. Um, creativity and being able to really explore different ways of thinking, really understand our relationships. And our kids just don't have the space to do that anymore. Yeah. And, okay, now we hear a lot about changing brain chemistry or changing the way that brains function. Can that happen over something like a childhood, depending on what is taking place and what is not taking place? Absolutely, 100%. So we know that our brain, um, how our brain looks depends on the types of experiences that we give our children. And we know with our kids that a lot of them are in a low state of constant stress because they're constantly overwhelmed even when they're so-called relaxing in front of the screen. So when all of that energy goes to a stress response, it doesn't allow the brain to do the beautiful work that it should be doing throughout childhood and a lot of that beautiful work happens in moments of boredom or moments of just being, and our children don't have that space anymore. Really? Okay. So those moments of boredom, we used to have them as kids quite a lot, where I don't have anything to do. I don't, what am I, I going to do today? And it always seemed like a negative. Was that a <laughs> negative in any way? Absolutely not. Um, it really, those moments when we were all kids helped us to understand our feelings, our world, put our autobiographical information into order. And so what's happening, Mike, is that a lot of our kids are reaching 19, 20, 21 years old, and they have no idea who they are, what their passions are, or really how to work with their emotions. And so we're seeing a massive mental health crisis, not only in our children, but in our young adults, too. Okay, none of this sounds very good, so let's ask a very difficult question. Tanya Johnson joining us, co-founder of the Institute of Child Psychology. Is there any fixing this? Absolutely. And, you know, Mike, in my own practice, I move away from looking at 
how often kids, let's look at screens as an example, how often kids should be on screens per day, and I'm more interested in balance over a week. So how much time is spent in passionate pursuits that aren't screen-based? How much time is downtime, so boredom time? How much time is spent on sports? How much time is spent with family, as an example? So I'm more interested in a kid's balance wheel over a week and making sure that all of those areas are filled in. Okay, so how do you create something like a balance wheel? What does that look like? Um, I have my own balance wheel in my practice, but basically what I'll do is I'll sit down with the whole family and I'll say, what are the values of your family? And we'll figure out what the values are. So a lot of people say spending time with family, being outside, play. So we'll figure out what a family's values are and we'll create a wheel and say, okay, so when we're operating at our very, very best, how much time are we spending in each of these areas? And then we work it on, on it as a whole family instead of just focusing on the child because we know that our kids mirror their parents. Gotcha. And hey, let's face it, we got a lot of parents who aren't bored anymore either. So is that a behavior that you just have to say, okay, for the sake of my kids, I got to make sure that I'm not using my phone as a boredom killer? 100%. 100%. And I can guarantee you, whatever you do on your phone is what your child will eventually mirror. We're so talk- you have to think, what I, want, what I want for my kids, what I want for my family. And therein lies the answer. Tanya Johnson with us, co-founder of the Institute of Child Psychology. We're talking about whether or not kids can be bored anymore. And as Tanya says, there's there's a lot going on that they just pick up the screen and, and you, you lose those downtimes in life. So in terms of, I guess, the screens that kids get, I mean, they'll start on them at two and uh, or two years old and you would think okay well that's not a bad thing because they'll have to know this technology and they become more adept at this technology and their brains accepted but at the same time do you have ages that you say okay this age is probably too young or this age is probably too young for a phone or can you can you blanket it like that or does it depend on the kid yeah you know like really we want to limit screen time as much as possible for kids under the age of three and then from three, I would say all the way through elementary school, as much as we can co-view with our children. Um, so an hour a day max of entertainment screens and then having parents actually sit there and be engaged in what they say that what their kids are watching so that they can discuss what they're, what they're learning about, discuss the feelings that the children are viewing and be a part of that digital experience. We know that when parents are digital mentors, that the outcomes when it comes to digital technology is much, much, much better. Instead of just being on the side. All right. Well, that at least has a a positive to it. So do the job of a parent and parent and make sure you're watching what's going on and watching how much of it is there. In terms of putting limits, sometimes, you know, parents struggle to, to say, okay, you know, put that down or don't use that. Do you use a hard limit in your mind or, or do you just kind of play it by ear? I, you know, my practice, I always say for our, our younger kids, we don't really want more than an hour a day. Um, and there's some great tools online. You can literally just Google family media plan uh, where the whole family sits down and comes up with a family media plan together. And again, targeting all members of the family. Um, you know, one of the things I always do when ending screen time is instead of just saying, yell at your kid from a different room, come in, sit down next to them, talk to them about what they're actually playing on or what they're watching. So we bring them back into reality, use a little bit of touch and then transition them out of that screen time. How concerned are you for the future in that probably not a lot of families are taking the time to pay attention to how much screen time their kids are are making use of? 
Yeah, Mike, I'm really, I'm, I'm really concerned. We're seeing that stress is increasing in our youth, and we know that when stress increases, that it leads to mental health issues. And I think unless we actually become proactive, and as a family and as a community say, enough, enough, digital media is here to stay, but it can only be a part of our world. It cannot be our whole world. Unless we say that, we're in for a tough time later on with our kids. Well said. Thank you so much for the time and the insight on this. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great afternoon. You too, Max. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That is Tanya Johnson, co-founder of the Institute of Child Psychology. And again, your phone will spit out how many hours you were on it this week. It's very easy to figure out what you were using, what apps you were using. It keeps all that data. And as Tanya says, you know, we've been given all these cool tools, all these cool things to use, but no instruction book. Because there isn't an instruction book. And there's no instruction book for kids. But, yeah, to to keep it, because it, it's addictive. It is. Picking up your phone and looking at it is addictive. I'm addicted to checking sports scores. That's terrible. I've got to cut that out. I'll look up sports scores of some hockey league in Sweden sometimes. What am I doing? And then you catch yourself and you think, put that down. What are you doing? And that's something that, as Tanya points out, we've all got to be cognizant of. Especially if you've got kids around. Digital media can be a part of your life. And I love that. It can't be all of your life. And so often it is the fallback to anything that is not something else that we are doing. In the spirit of democracy, neighborhood voting sounds like a great idea. And it's something that has gone on. And it's something I think we need a history lesson in because maybe, just maybe, you missed your opportunity. Joining us right now is Ward 5 Councillor Maureen Cassidy. Councillor Cassidy, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Can we do a little bit of a history lesson on, and am I even calling it, I've heard it called a, a couple of different things, neighborhood voting? Uh, I, the, the actual program is called Neighborhood Decision Making. Gotcha. Neighborhood Decision Making. That sounds much better. Okay. Yeah. So take us back to Neighborhood Decision Making and the origin of it. So um, I think this is the third full year, I think. I could be wrong. Uh, but then there was a year before that where it was the pilot uh, project. And so there were a number of things that had gone on in the, the first, the beginning of the 2014 to 2018 council. We, we made a few decisions on, on how we handled budget and, and, and budget specifically uh, with regard to organizations and groups coming to the city looking for money uh, to fund different things. So we made a number of, of changes to how we handled those things. And one of them was to implement a pilot project called Neighborhood Decision Making. It started as a small pilot in, um, in an area that covered a bit of Ward 7 and a bit of Ward 6. And, and it was just the idea of rather than bureaucrats or organizations deciding what a neighborhood needs or should have, we thought that we should put that decision into the hands of the, the residents themselves, they know best what, what they need in their neighborhood, what will enhance their neighborhood, what will serve their people. And so, uh, so that's what started as a pilot project. And, uh, and then it, it launched into a full-fledged citywide project the following year. And it's been running ever since. And it's been growing 
ever since as people learn more and more about it. It's funny that you say, you know, some people might not know about it. It's uh, There were close to 10,000 online votes cast, and then people also were voting in person at the various library branches across the city, and there was steady foot traffic, and there were so many votes cast and so many people coming in to vote in person that it actually bogged down the online system. So things were, were happening quite slowly. People were having some issues loading the site and all of that stuff because there was so much traffic and so much response to this. So that's a really good thing. And it helps us to learn going forward too how to respond to this much interest in, in such a great project. Is it an annual vote? It happens annually. It's open to all ages. Another byproduct that we hope to see from this sort of thing is to get young people used to the idea of of voting, whether you go online, which a lot of communities in Ontario already allow municipal elections to take place online. So we may see, who knows, something like that coming to London, Ontario at some point. Uh, but also going in person to the library to cast a ballot is it's it's almost like good practice for young people so that they get used to the idea of going out and voting and doing their civic duty. We're talking with Ward 5 Councillor Maureen Cassidy about neighborhood decision making. So the latest vote has now gone by. When the data comes in, how do you make use of that? So there's 250,000 citywide for the entire uh, project uh, or program. And each, the city's been cut up into five different zones. So it's not by ward, it's by zone. And uh, and each zone gets uh, $50,000 for projects. So the no individual project can uh, can get, be awarded more than $30,000 because we want to try to spread it around as much as possible. Uh, and uh, we're trying to limit it as well so that one geographic location can't uh, get the money subsequent years in a row, consecutive years. So again, to try and spread it around to as many areas of the city as we possibly can. And the thing that we've got to realize in what you're saying is this is not being taken from other areas of the budget then? This is already budgeted money? We're not missing out on a social service to put money into one of the ideas that comes forth in neighborhood decision-making? No, this is this is already budgeted. And, and, it's a, and, you know, I think it's a really great initiative for for grassroots organizations, for grassroots neighborhood groups to come together, to brainstorm, to think of good ideas for their communities. I know in Ward 5, there was one um, one idea for a pollinator garden in uh, along the Stony Creek in uh, in Ward 5. So personally, I think that's a great idea. And we, we know that bee health and pollinator in general, pollinator health is good for our ecosystem, good for our environment. And and it uh, provides learning opportunities for kids and things like that. So there's all sorts of different um, ideas around. Um, a lot of the focus this year was around schools, which some people are concerned about. And I can see some issues there because, you know, are we filling a gap that school boards or the provincial government is leaving open? Um, we're, we're learning as we go along in this in this program. As I said, it's 
it hasn't been around forever. It's it's uh, fairly new, and uh, and we're learning as we go. Like I said, we did some tweaks to the program this year uh, by putting in a dollar a dollar cap on each individual project award. Um, so we'll continue to refine it as it goes along, and I think it's a really great way for neighbors and neighborhoods can come together to try to organize their their project idea and get people voting for their project idea. And you don't have to vote in your own area. You can vote for a project in another area of the city, and I, I even saw on social media that some people were trying to organize that way um, to, to make sure that areas of the city that aren't as economically advantaged as some areas that they're getting enough votes because it's sometimes harder to get organization and and everybody coming together to to get behind an idea. Sometimes that can be a challenge in some neighborhoods. So it was really good to see people all throughout the city trying to vote for these these areas that may not have the same advantages as some of the wealthier parts of our city have. Councillor Cassidy, thank you so much for getting us up to speed on this. If you had a lot of votes last year, let's hope we get even more next year. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Ward 5 Councillor Maureen Cassidy on neighborhood decision making. Now, if you're making any kind of a decision right now, uh, you might want to look outside the window and see whether that drive somewhere through the snow squalls is a good idea. We've got yet another high school football game tonight. There were high school football games last Thursday in just a complete snow squall, and it looks like the two teams that played last Thursday are going to wind up playing tonight in what could be another snowball. So that's coming up, but just if you're making a decision, make sure you keep the weather in mind as you do that. As for if you're making a decision to be healthier, get into better shape, you're beating the New Year's resolution. You know, New Year's is a whole lot closer to the start of summer than we're at right now. You may want to take Mike Arsenault up on some advice because Mike just happens to be doing a series called The Culture of Fitness on Global News, and you're going to see more on The Culture of Fitness a little later on tonight. Mike has already done a little something on dance fighting, and tonight he does... Parkour, And in doing each of these segments, he actually experiments with each of these things. Global News reporter Mike Arsenault joins us right now. Mike, you survived parkour? Yes, I did. So I have uh, capoeira and now parkour under my belt, uh, two episodes in, in the uh, Culture Fitness Series for Global News. Well, we're going to talk parkour today. No injuries whatsoever? You didn't roll an ankle or anything like that? No, I'm actually, I made it through unscathed, so that's two for two in these weeks, so that uh, that's good to know. But uh, yeah, parkour is very interesting. It was a little bit different uh, from capoeira, obviously, but it's it basically boils down to kind of running, jumping, climbing, swinging, and vaulting over obstacles. That's pretty much what it boils down to, what parkour means. And it's not like you're putting hurdles down or jumping through tires. You're using natural landmarks, basically, or, or things that are just there in front of you, right? Exactly. It's getting from point A to point B as quick as possible. And really, it kind of took hold in the mainstream back in 2006. Um, if you remember the, uh, the James Bond movie Casino Royale, um, I think, it, yeah, it was Casino Royale. I think it was Daniel Craig's uh, first James Bond movie. Basically, the opening scene is parkour as he's chasing the one bad guy kind of uh, through 
through an atmosphere, through, uh, I think there's like a, a factory, a cement plant or something, and also through like an embassy. That is basically what parkour is, and that kind of exploded it into the mainstream a little bit. <laughs> okay, so for anyone who's picturing it, they can go and they can watch Casino Royale. Uh, they could easily Google it, but to save us some time, you say it's it's kind of getting from place to place, jumping, running. Is there a design to this? Is it like, okay, we're, we're just going to go in a straight line and whatever is in the way, we're going to go over? Or do you plan out a route how you're going to go through something on, on kind of a parkour course? How do you do it? It can be a little bit of both. I mean, if you're a little bit more advanced, you could kind of design something with friends and say, and kind of time yourself, how quickly can you get this? Or if you want to say, jump over that wall, there's one technique you can do it, or there's another way or perhaps another method that you can do to kind of get around the obstacle. So it's it's a, a physical component, but it's also a mental component because you're trying to navigate through um, obstacles and you kind of have that, uh, that mental um, acuity that is needed to kind of perform park so you kind of get the, the physical and mental benefits from the exercise. Global News reporter Mike Arsenault joining us as we talk about Mike's series, The Culture of Fitness. It's turned to parkour this week. So you mentioned you do this at a high rate of speed. So anyone who's watched a little bit of parkour, you'll see people jumping up on railings. You'll see them kind of running up walls, grabbing onto to rooftops and pulling themselves up. And some of the better ones will do like a flip at the top and flip themselves onto it. Is there a parkour for beginners or a slow lane in this? Well, I was put in the slow lane when I was there. I was actually put in a kid's class to start. So, yeah, it, it's definitely, it can be for everyone. It's just how you scale it and how you modify the movements. And what it boils down to is it helps with body awareness, body control, hand-eye coordination, and it teaches people how to fall. So if, if you think of those four to five aspects, that's important for people when they're young. It's important for people when they're old. So obviously, if you were someone in their, in their 60s and you were trying parkour, it would be significantly modified to fit your ability and your skill set. You're not going to be doing the flipping, the jumping, and the vaulting that someone in their 20s would who has been doing it for a number of years. But those, those tenets of, again, uh, motor co- or body control, uh, movement-based, and learning how to fall, that's extremely important as people age and parkour and parkour will kind of help navigate those issues and kind of help you feel more confident in your body in your surroundings last week when you taught us about capoeira there was a lot of body control in that as well is that something maybe we've neglected in fitness for a while in north america that you're uncovering in other parts of the world I think it is for sure, because if you think about North America, Mike, we're thinking of a gym routine. You isolate your upper body one day, or you do back and shoulders and then legs another day. But just picture, how do you move in everyday life? When you walk, do you just use one muscle? right? When you pick up your groceries from the ground and put them on your counter, is that just using a bicep or using all of your muscles in concert? And that kind of looks to be the secret sauce with different cultures around the world. They're using their entire body to put themselves through a certain regimen. They're not sitting on a machine and, okay, I'm going to work triceps here and then I'm going to work quads because that's not how you live in real life. Where is parkour maybe most popular? It actually originated uh, through uh, French military training. This was in the 1980s, and then it kind of was taken uh, at a civilian level, and then it kind of really, again, exploded with a ca- a Casino Royale with uh, Daniel Craig as uh, James Bond. But it's, I mean, literally, if you just think of just kind of navigating um, some obstacles on a beach, that is an element of parkour, right? If you're walking along the beach and you have to step over a log, that is 
kind of getting <laughs> from point A to point B as quick as possible. It's just scaled and modified depending on your age and fitness level. That is great. So you've got a report coming up tonight. Can you listen to music while you do parkour? Uh, yeah, yeah, you can definitely listen to some music. Sure, it just uh, make sure you have the. Uh, I don't know how. I don't have AirPods myself, but if you're <laughs> kind of doing flips and moving around, would they would they stay in your ears? I, I know you're know. a gymnastics expert, right, Mike? Ah, uh, not quite. No, and one of my ears doesn't hold one of those AirPods at all. So, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not one to test AirPods, but I'm thinking you'd want something more secure, maybe a headband around those. Or just duct tape it. Just duct tape them That's to, your, good. Uh, to, your, to your ears. There that you could be a new style. Duct tape around the head. You won't lose <laughs> yeah. anything. Mike, thanks so much for the series. Thanks so much for the time. We'll look forward to seeing that tonight. Thanks, Mike. Talk to you soon. Global News reporter Mike Arsenault on his series, The Culture of Fitness. Tonight, Mike attempts parkour. And you get the heads up on it. He survived it. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 